Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and video show which brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. If you're new to the channel, please subscribe so you won't miss a new episode. I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Vint Surf. Vint, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Fritz. It's always a pleasure to join you in conversation. Vint, let me introduce you to the audience who might not have heard about you. You are recognized as an American internet pioneer um, called one of the fathers of the internet. Uh, you actually are the co-author of the TCP protocol. We'll cover that a little bit later, what that is. Because of that, you are a founding member of the ICANN and ESOC, uh, not household names, but very, very significant organizations related to the internet. And that resulted in numerous honors, awards, you were the author and co-author, too many to mention, although I'll make a couple of exceptions. Uh, you received the Turing Award, uh, which as recognized as the Nobel Prize for Digital, uh, Medal of Freedom, Medal of Technology, and the Marconi Award. And that's just scratching the surface. Well, and, and there are many others. And uh, yeah. among them, I have to say that the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering was a, an, an unexpected uh, honor. And most recently, the IEEE uh, made an award of the um, what they call the Medal of Honor, which is their most prestigious award. And when you look at the list of other people who have been recognized, it's jaw dropping. And you wonder, what am I doing in that list? Uh, nonetheless, I think that there's also a peculiar phenomenon that perhaps something worth your audience recognizing. After you've received a certain number of visible awards, people start wanting to award you their award because it makes their award look better. This is and, good. And, and there's it's a very peculiar feedback loop. Uh, which causes me to suggest to some of the people, you know, why don't you find some other folks who deserve, you know, recognition? I have more than enough, and I appreciate that. It doesn't stop people from doing it anyway, so here we are. Well, I, I, I think they do want to recognize uh, I said, the great benefit uh, the Internet has brought the world, um, although it might be a little bit controversial for some at the moment, but... Uh, as a whole, I think the internet is one of the greatest inventions of uh, modern time. Now, well, when you speak of modern time, Fritz, you should know that this is this year is the 50th anniversary of the design of the internet. It began in 1973 when Bob Kahn invited me to work with him on the design of this system. Um, and it's a little hard to accept the idea that that something that started 50 years ago is still of interest. But it certainly has grown and penetrated our society on a global scale. Yeah. Uh, we still think only about two thirds of the world's population has direct access to the internet. So in fact, we're still working to get more opportunity. Uh, but it, it is amazing that something which has spanned a 50 year period continues to be a contributor to uh, our society and our economy. And it's also one of the inventions which, where you can still meet the founders uh, almost all major inventions out there, the, those are long gone. Uh, so that in itself also makes it unique. But when I was preparing the interview, uh, although we know each other uh, from the internet context, 
Uh, I was wondering if we should be talking about the internet or more generic about communication, because you also were involved in writing protocols for radio, for satellites, for security technology. So, uh, and the, the internet is just one of those media which requires communication. So do you see yourself more as somebody who understands, who's busy with communication or with uh, the internet? Well, first of all, I don't pretend to be an expert in all forms of communication. There are a variety of technologies that I know little about, uh, radio being one example and laser-based technology another. I have appreciation for these. And at need, I will turn to the experts. Uh, Bob Kahn, for example, did his PhD dissertation uh, at uh, Princeton University on rate distortion theory, which turns out to be a very abstract notion of communications. And he went on to teach at MIT and then joined Bolt, Baranek, and Newman, and then joined the Advanced Research Projects Agency. Um, but it was thanks to his invitation that I got involved specifically in the internet. Before that, I was involved in the ARPANET project, which is a predecessor. But the point I want to make is that I don't pretend to be expert on all of these fields, but I appreciate their roles. And I also appreciate finding people who are experts. Yeah. And if there's any me message to be uh, uncovered in this part of our conversation, it's recognizing that you should turn to people who know more than you do, uh, and you should feel comfortable doing that. Uh, if, you, if you want to set off to do something big, your first order of business is to get help, yeah. preferably from people who are smarter than you are uh, in the areas where uh, you may not have expertise. And I'm extremely comfortable with that idea. I don't have a problem hiring people who are smarter than I am or know more than I do, um, because I know that that, is, uh, that actually enhances your capacity uh, for progress. Now, you make that observation from the perspective that you bring in people which can help you, but can you take us along? Because I've uh, found out that you're actually part in uh, as, uh, as uh, the part of the Apollo program. So in the '60s, when at high school, still looking at okay, um, uh, the protocols the, the Apollo program was uh, looking at. So why would they go to a high school student? Well, first of all, let's let's make sure that we uh, correctly understand my tiny, tiny little contribution. Uh, it was actually not on communications. It had to do with the actual F1 engines of the uh, Saturn V rocket. The first stage consisted of five 1.5 million pound thrust engines. They were built by a company called Rocketdyne. And as I graduated from high school in February of 1961, I had six months to wait before I matriculated at Stanford University as an undergraduate in mathematics. And my father, who happened to work at Rocketdyne, uh, had given me an opportunity to compete with others uh, for scholarships uh, at North American Aviation, which was the holding company that uh, held the Rocketdyne subsidiary. And so I would like to think that I got the job not because my father was there, but because I had competed with others. I ended up writing software for where evaluating the performance of the F1 engines in a fixed jig, test jig, in the Santa Susana Mountains. We would fire this thing off 
at full throttle, one and a half million pounds of thrust, and we would uh, put sensors all over it in order to assess how well it was holding together. Uh, we only cared that it would keep together until it ran out of fuel, as you know, the German phrase, Brennschuss. And after that, we didn't care. Now, unlike Elon Musk and others who have designed and built first stage uh, rockets that actually preserve their existence so they can be reused, which is a dramatic change from uh, the 1960s when I was doing this little bit of uh, software development for analytic purposes. So I had a very, very small role in that, but it made a huge impact on me because I was a huge science fiction fan. And the idea that I even had a tiny opportunity to be part of this gigantic community that was helping us get to the moon for the first time uh, was, you know, nothing short of, you know, mind-boggling. Uh, so I was a very excited uh, young person then, imagining that 20 years later, that would have been in the 1980s, that we would have regular launches and we would have, you know, uh, places, habitats on the moon and so on. It took us a hell of a lot longer to get to that potential. And as you know, we are just now beginning the return mission to the moon with the Artemis uh, effort. Um, so I was disappointed that we didn't continue uh, the effort that was initiated by, uh, by President Kennedy in the early 1960s. Uh, nonetheless, it was still a very exciting time for me. And I look back on that with considerable gratitude. I can imagine so. And maybe I've put a little too much Hollywood sauce on it. But when I read that, I did think of the film Hidden Figures, which is a great film about, you could say, those people yes. not recognized. It's wonderful. I love that film. And I'm so glad that it was made because we want to recognize people who contributed uh, and who were not as visible as they should have been. Okay. So it got me thinking. So if there's ever going to be a Hidden fig Figures uh, sequel, then it's going to be about high school students who helped to put the rocket on the moon. One thing I will tell you is that we often give students less credit for what they are capable of doing. And we discover this when we have science contests, for example. And these unbelievably ambitious young people uh, go off and do things that are, uh, you know, at college level, even graduate level work. Uh, we should not forget that young people are capable of doing amazing things. And if you look back in history, when lifetimes were a lot shorter than they are today, an awful lot of the uh, breakthroughs were done by people who were in their teens and 20s because they died by the time they were 37 or 40 or something like that. And in fact, I can tell you just uh, as a little anecdote, one of my best friends, Steve Crocker, whom I, with whom I went to high school, in the Los Angeles area, and I were um, probably, respectively, I was 17 and he was 16 or something like that. And we're walking down the street and we are sitting there thinking that we're failures because at our age, we had not done anything significant in mathematics. And we looked back in history and saw that 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds had already done dramatic things in the mathematical spectrum. And here we were. I hadn't done a thing. Uh, well, it turned out that uh, we did okay. Uh, but uh, from the young person's perspective, we thought we were way behind the times. Uh, that's an understatement, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and finishing off the, the talk about communication, because I also realized uh, oh, 
I hope I can share that with you. Uh, you. Actually, you also met your wife to some respect because of you both had a communication de deficiency and hearing. That's, that is correct. Uh, I have a hearing impairment, which originated um, because I was born six weeks early and uh, in 1943. And in those years, all I could think of to do was to put me in an oxygen tent to make sure that my as yet fully developed young lungs would still provide enough oxygen. But the uh, pure oxygen caused what some people believe was a progressive nerve loss, neural nerve loss. So my hearing gets worse uh, as each year goes by, by about one dB. But the hearing aids get better by about that much. So I'm okay you know, for all these years. Uh, my, uh, so I've been wearing hearing aids all for, since I was 13. And when I was living in Los Angeles and working in IBM in the uh, mid-1960s, um, I had a hearing aid dealer who would, you know, tech my ears and replace the hearing aids from time to time. And one weekend, he said, uh, I want you to come in because there's someone I want you to meet. Well, um, my wife was uh, totally deaf. Uh, she'd lost her hearing when she was three years old. She wore a gigantic big sonotone body aid, which gave her a little bit of low frequency sound, but she was like 90 dB down. I mean, this is essentially profoundly deaf. So she uh, had to come in <clears throat> that weekend because her hearing aid had broken and she was not in a good mood because she had just gotten a job and her first paycheck that she'd ever gotten was gonna be spent on another damn hearing aid. And she was not a happy camper. So we introduced us to each other in the shop on Wilshire Boulevard and what's called the Miracle Mile in Los Angeles. And then he closed the shop. And so, you know, we're out on the sidewalk and she's really cute. And I'm trying to figure out how do I keep this going? So I asked her if she wanted to have lunch and she agreed. And so we went down the street, found a little lunch shop. We were chatting over lunch. I asked her what she did. And she said, well, I'm a renderer. And I thought that meant she cut up whale blubber, you know, and turned it into oil. And, uh, and I, she didn't look like somebody who did that. And she explained, no, no, I'm, I'm an artistic renderer. I draw pictures of what buildings and offices and restaurants will look like when everybody's done so that the customer can see what it's going to look like. Well, so I learned a lesson. And then she said, um, after lunch, I'm still trying to figure out how do I keep this going. And she says, would you like to see my favorite painting at the L.A. County Art Museum, which is down the street? And, you know, sure, you know, anything to keep going. So we go down the street and she uh, puts me in front of a gigantic uh, Kandinsky painting, you know, these big walls, oh. walls size things. And I'm looking at this and, and um, out loud, I said, this looks like a floating green hamburger. And I'm sure that if this is a movie where the audience could decide, you know, what's going to happen next, either she's going to decide I'm a hopeless Philistine or maybe I'm repairable. Well, she must have decided that I was repairable because this year in September, we will celebrate our 57th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, you are talking about Kadinsky, by the way. So um, if you ever make it to Holland, I'm going to invite you to uh, one of the museums in uh, in Amsterdam, which has a lot of uh, Kadinsky work and similar work. So that's on me, if, the, if that ever well, happens. This is perfect because I'll invite my wife to come with me and she will appreciate yes. that. Yes, deal. Yeah. yeah. Good. Hey, uh, let's move on to your work on the internet. When you started off, and the, uh, you could say, uh, producing the protocols which allowed us to create the internet, um, 
at what time did you realize it became a global sensation? So uh, we need a little bit of background. Uh, I was a graduate student at UCLA. I left IBM uh, after two years of work because I felt the need to go back for graduate school in computer science. So I'm at UCLA around 1967. A couple of years into that program, uh, one of the researchers there, Leonard Kleinrock, got a contract from the Advanced Research Projects Agency to create a network measurement center, which was intended to measure the performance of a packet switch network called ARPANET. And the company that built the packet switches was called Bolt, Baranek and Newman. And one of the lead designers in the system, the architect uh, of the system was Robert Kahn, uh, who had uh, done his graduate work at Princeton, joined the faculty as one of the youngest professors at MIT ever, and was, and was persuaded to go get some uh, practical experience in industry. And so he'd gone to Bolt, Baranek and Newman. So uh, the first packet switches of the ARPANET were delivered to UCLA in September of 1969. And my colleague, uh, Steve Crocker, uh, who's again, my best friend in high school and still my best friend, uh, was the lead in the network working group that did the work on the protocols for host-to-host -host communication over the ARPANET. And I was a participant in that, and he wrote the software for measuring the performance. Bob Kahn came out in January, I think, of 1970, and had some ideas about the um, uh, potential weaknesses of the implementation of the ARPANET. But his colleagues didn't agree with him. So we got together and ran a whole series of performance tests, which killed the network repeatedly in various ways that Bob had anticipated. And of course, he brought all that information back to his colleagues and said, see, I told you so. And they had to do some, uh, some redevelopment. The ARPANET was a tremendously successful experiment in packet switching. It was intended to uh, link a dozen universities together to share their computing resources and to accelerate the rate at which artificial intelligence and computer science research could be undertaken. Um, one, the, the success of that system, which, by the way, led to electronic mail, which was first invented by uh, Ray Tomlinson in 1971, um, taught us that this computer communication idea was very, very powerful. It allowed people to work with each other across multiple time zones. Computer-mediated communication had all kinds of benefits. Uh, distribution lists were kind of the first examples of social media. One of the first lists I joined was called sci-fi lovers, which, you know, we had arguments over who were the best sci-fi writers. And the other one was Yum Yum, which was a, uh, a restaurant review list that Stanford University hosted. So uh, the ARPANET experience was so successful that it led uh, the Defense Department and my colleague, especially Bob Kahn, who had gone from BBNN to ARPA, to think about the possibility of using packet switching in command and control as a platform uh, to support not only the American Defense Department, but its allies as well. Well, it turns out that if you're going to do something for command and control, you're going to have to deal with mobile vehicles, ships at sea, and aircraft, which meant we had to use radio in addition to dedicated wirelines. And the original ARPANET was just dedicated telephone circuits connecting the packet switches. So Bob Kahn uh, came out to Stanford, where I had gone from UCLA to join the faculty, and said, you know, we've got a problem. I have these multiple networks, packet radio, packet satellite, and the ARPANET. How do we hook them together 
and make it look uniform, even if they are have very different parameters, different delays, latency, uh, error rates, addressing structures, and so on. And that was the internet problem. And it took us about six months to think our way through that. We uh, briefed the design uh, to a network working group, an international network working group in the UK in September of 1960, uh, 1973. And then in May of 74, IEEE published our paper on a protocol for packet network intercommunication, which was the first public uh, description of how the internet could work. And uh, of course, then we started uh, doing implementation starting and well, we, we at, at Stanford, I had a group that was doing the detailed specification of the TCP protocol based on the paper in IEEE. And then in 1975, we began serious implementation on multiple operating systems at, uh, at Stanford, at uh, Bolt Baranek and Newman at University College London with Peter Kirstein's group. So one important point out of this long preamble is that the internet work was international very early on. And it's important to recognize that, that we had colleagues in, largely in Europe, some in Asia, uh, and certainly in the U.S. So at, you asked the question, so when did I understand this was a big deal? Ironically, it took about 15 years to get to that point. Uh, we start the work uh, in 1973. Uh, we get to the point where in 1982, I'm at ARPA. I'm running the program. I'm the program manager responsible for packet satellite, packet radio, packet security, and internet. And I want desperately to get this thing actually running. So starting in 1982, we told everyone, we will be forcing all of you to switch over to the TCP IP protocols from the original NCP protocols of the ARPANET on January 1st, 1983. And we made good on that. We, we said, if you're not running TCP IP, you're off the net. Uh, and you know, a lot of people uh, were resistant for a while, but then I explained to them that I had the ability to knock them off the net if they weren't running the right protocols. So by January 1, 1983, the internet is operationally turned on. That's its operational birth date. Five years later, um, the, there are companies like Cisco Systems that are making equipment, routers that buy, can be purchased by the uh, uh, academic community to build pieces of internet. Oh, by the way, another important invention in 1973 is the Ethernet. And that's designed and built at Xerox Park by Bob Metcalf and David Boggs. And so that is, joins the packet radio, packet satellite, and ARPANET as yet another packet switch technology uh, that had needed to be incorporated into the internet design so that everything would work smoothly despite all of the variations in the network. So by 1988, there is an exhibition called Interop started by another friend of mine, Dan Lynch. And the idea there was to allow people that built routers or built other applications or host software to show off not only what they had, but that it would interwork with everything else on this big fat, you know, uh, yellow uh, coaxial cable ethernet at the show. So I walk into the show in 1988 with Eric Benamou, who at the time was the CEO of 3Com, a company started by Bob Metcalf to sell ethernet. And the first thing we see is a two-story Cisco display that, I mean, it's, it's big enough that people can be on different floors showing off their products and talking to customers. And I turned to Eric and I said, Eric, how much does this cost? And he said, a quarter of a million dollars to build this, 
display. And, and that doesn't count the cost of the people who are there for, you know, a, a, a week. So um, at that point, yeah, my jaw drops and I'm thinking, holy cow, somebody must think they're going to make money out of the Internet. And at that point, the only people who are allowed to use it were people under government contract, whether it was ARPA or the National Science Foundation or the Department of Energy. Uh, or NASA, they were the only funding agencies that allowed people onto the internet. And each of them had built their own backbones, which were then interconnected. So this is purely a government thing. No commercial traffic was allowed to flow in the government backbones. So I'm sitting here thinking, how do I get the general public onto the internet, given that we're not allowed to send commercial traffic? We need a commercial engine to support the cost of internet for the private sector. So how do we do that? And I had built something called MCI Mail in 1983 for MCI, a commercial email service. So I got the idea that if I could get the NSF to allow me to connect the commercial MCI Mail system to the internet, that I'd break the appropriate use policy because then commercial traffic would be flowing. But I couched it as an experiment. And they said, okay, you know, you can try that out for a year. So we got it going in 1989. And as soon as we announced that we were doing this experiment with email and the internet, everybody else who was doing email services said, well, we have to be on too. So OnTime and Telemail and uh, several other uh, CompuServe and several other commercial email services got on. And of course, they used to be islands, but as soon as they were connected to the internet, all their customers could talk to each other, which was kind of shocking. I mean, holy cow, uh, I used to have a customer base that was you know, trapped. And all of a sudden, they're not trapped anymore. Well, that same year, 1989, three commercial internet services pop up, UUNet and PSINet in Virginia and SurfNet in uh, California and San Diego. And so at that point, I am confident that the internet is going to be something more than its original plan, which was to be the uh, basic uh, backbone for the uh, American Defense Department's command and control uh, and also uh, uh, for the allies that it was working with. By the way, the recognition that the allies had to know how to do this, if it was going to work uh, as planned, meant that we had to release the information to the allies. And Bob and I literally thought our way through that. In 1973, we said, who are our allies now? And we had some list. Then we said, well, who were our allies 25 years before? And the list was different because that was in the middle of World War II. Then uh, we said, well, who will our allies be 25 years from now? We didn't know the answer to that. So we decided the only way to make sure that the allies had access to this idea so they could build compatible networks was to simply release it publicly, which we did. No patents, no licensing, no constraints on access to how it worked and what the details of the protocol were. And I'm so glad we did that. Is it, uh was there any um, inspiration um, which led you to that conclusion? No, I think it was just a kind of logical progression. Yeah. Uh, we could see uh, partly from the experience of the ARPANET, partly with the experience of the Internet, where we had graduate students all over the place who were using it every single day to do their work. Uh, and oh, by the way, in 1991, of course, Tim Berners-Lee announces the World Wide Web out of CERN, which also creates this gigantic uh, side effect 
Nobody noticed very much that Tim had done that release, except in uh, the National Center for Supercomputer Applications, where Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina took a look at the text-based World Wide Web that Tim had released in December of 91, and said, what if we made a graphical user interface for this? So they developed a um, product called Mosaic, which was basically a, a graphical browser. And they released that publicly and freely, just as Tim Berners-Lee released the World Wide Web, HTTP, and HTML. Again, he said specifically he did it for the same reasons Bob and I did. We wanted everybody to be able to use it. And of course, that led to uh, an explosion of World Wide Web applications, especially after um, the Netscape Communications was started by Jim Clark yeah. by bringing Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina to the West Coast in 1994, uh, bringing along with them their expertise in Mosaic. They re-implemented that, and then the company went public in 1995, and if you remember, the stock went through the roof, and the result was the dot boom. The venture capital people threw money at anything that looked like it was part of the internet, and that went on very successfully until April of 2000, and then a lot of the companies ran out of capital and they died, except for a few. For example, Amazon gets started in 1994, Google gets started in 1998 in the middle of the dot-boom period, and both of them have done pretty well in the uh, ensuing 25 yeah. years. To some extent, the rest is uh, history. This history. Um, a, a couple of questions. You um, you just said, okay, it, it sounds like everything you, it, it builds on, uh, it's, it's, it's logical, is a word you just used. Uh, but is there any um, anything which, you yourself use in your work which uh, offers inspiration are, are there people are there is there books songs whatever uh you go go to or or not well i have people that i consider to have been mentors uh, for me i've mentioned two of them already steve crocker of course was the one who led the network working group for the arpanet which was focused on how to get computers to talk to each other through this underlying packet switch system. Bob Kahn, who was instrumental in the design of the ARPANET and equally instrumental in the original design of the uh, internet, uh, and who has uh, led uh, research programs, not only at ARPA for 13 years, but then subsequently at the, uh, uh, at the CNRI, the Corporation for National Research Initiatives. He hired me in uh, 1986 to be his first employee and vice president at CNRI. And we, I stayed with him until 1994. And then MCI asked me to come back and put them into the internet business. So we have, both Bob and Steve and, and I have collaborated with each other literally uh, since the late 1950s in Steve's case and the uh, mid 1960s in Bob's case. These are people that I have enormous respect for and to whom I have turned for guidance and advice and collaborative work. Uh, there are others that fall into this same category, business people that, uh, that I have enormous respect for. George Conradis is, is one of them. He was part of, ran Bolt, Bolt Baranek and Newman for a time. Um, he was also uh, the uh, chairman of the board of Akamai which was also founded in 1998 uh, and also had an enormous impact on the internet because content distribution networks were a brilliant idea to uh, avoid having to transfer video and audio across the entire internet. 
what you did it is, is transfer it once, put it into a, um, a system that could uh, store that information and make it locally available in the head end or central office of a telco or a cable co. Uh, so there are people that, uh, that I consider uh, enormous sources of advice and inspiration uh, for me in my entire career. And of course, I've also discovered that young people are also sources of inspiration, but I'll tell you exactly how that manifests. Uh, I started at Google in, in 2005. At the time, I was 62 years old when I joined the company. Today, I'm 80. In fact, I just turned 80 about two weeks ago. So uh, it was amazing that Google hired a 62-year-old to begin with, because everybody else in the company was probably more like 24 to 27. So here's what I've discovered. Young people will come up and they'll say, why don't we do X for some value of X? And I'll think about this and I'll say, well, you know, we tried X 25 years ago and it didn't work. I have had to remind myself repeatedly that there are reasons why it didn't work 25 years ago and the reasons may no longer be valid. For example, computers are faster, there's more memory, things are cheaper, things are smaller, there's less weight, uses less power. All of those factors suggest that maybe doing X now makes more sense than it did 25 years ago. So I've had to rethink my positions repeatedly. I can tell you this is simultaneously refreshing uh, and, and also I get a real exercise in, um, in backing away from an earlier uh, 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 conclusion and recognizing that sometimes you really do have to rethink yeah. doing X because it may be feasible now. Great. Uh, yeah, then that's also uh, not realizing that some see boundaries because they're not, they're not there anymore, but you remember them from the past. Hey, I got a, a couple of things. Uh, I want to question you a couple of things about the internet and also because uh, I'm conscious of your time. Now, I was wondering, I want to talk about a couple of uh, issues with the internet, which I know is your concern. I also uh, bring something up, just wondering what your take on that is. Because you just, you just mentioned that the very first social media list was the list of restaurants you mentioned. And um, I know one of your concerns is the digital obsolescence. Uh, so the fact that the technology we used at the time makes what we produced at the time unaccessible because the technology is not there anymore. Um, and related to that, any thoughts on Brewster Cowles' internet archive? Is he is he on the right track? Well, he certainly is doing us all a big favor. It's not possible to download and store the entire internet. I mean, it's hard enough just to store its current state today with all the exabytes that are involved. And so trying to store the entire thing uh, over time is, is really impossible. But Brewster is doing the best he can to capture a lot of the internet. And it's really wonderful. He has a Wayback machine. And if you encounter a website that is no longer available, there's a plugin for the Chrome browser, and maybe there's one for the other browsers, that uh, says, would you like to go to the archive and see if you can find that uh, URL? And if he has stored that URL, it pops up. So you see the history. Uh, the thing that I worry the most about is what I'll call um, a digital dark age that is a consequence of uh, digital storage technology not lasting very long. And uh, this is, um, I think there are several aspects to this. One of them is the physical medium. 
I mean, how many people can still find a, uh, what, a three and a, uh, and a quarter inch or three and a half inch disc diskette? And even if you could find one, do you have a reader for it anywhere? Is the software that's required to drive the reader available? Uh, or a five and a quarter inch floppy, which used to be popular with the Apple II uh, system. So the media, the digital media, don't necessarily last all that long. Unlike um, things like cuneiform tablets that are made out of clay, but the clay got baked because the warehouse burned down and they're still around 6,000 years later. So none of the digital media have anything like that kind of longevity. The same is true for online media. Uh, you have to replace the disk drives and replace the tapes and so on or rewrite them. Uh, and so I worry that at some point, a lot of information that's generated digitally will be lost just because of the medium, or even if the medium holds the bits, you may not have a reader available that still works that can read those bits. Well, if you but it gets worse. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. I would assume if you have the drawing, you can rebuild it. If if really, you, you well, if if this gets to the next big problem, and that's actually knowing what the bits mean, and for that you need software. And so there's another problem, which is that the software that knows what the bits mean might not run anymore on the operating systems of the day. And so imagine it's 100 years from now. Will someone still be able to correctly read uh, a Microsoft Word file? Yeah. Now, to give you a concrete example of what I had to do in order to overcome this problem, I found some uh, three and a quarter inch, or no, three and a half inch floppy disks. And I had to go on eBay to buy a reader which I got, plugged it into my Mac, and was able to pull files off of this diskette. But it turned out the files were WordPerfect files. And I did not have a WordPerfect uh, application running on the Mac of the day. But fortunately, I happened to have a very old Macintosh, which was still running an old Microsoft product that knew how to read WordPerfect files and transfer them into Microsoft Word of the 1997 variety. So I copied the Microsoft Word files, I'm sorry, I copied the WordPerfect files over onto my old Mac, transformed them into Microsoft Word files, and then moved the 1997 Word files over to another Mac, which was running a more recent version of Microsoft Word that could put them out in you know, uh, a more DocX, uh, you know, up-to-date format. But it was pure happenstance that I had the right equipment around to do the transformation. Looking, you know, 100 to 200 to 300 years ahead, we may not have any software that can incorrectly operate on the then current operating systems. So we get to the point where we're starting to think, well, do I have to emulate old hardware in yeah. a virtual machine to load old operating systems, to load old application software, to load the old files in order to correctly interact with them and use them? And the answer is that might be the way, only way we can do in the future. So now we have to keep track of instruction set architectures. Uh, we have to get permission to use those instruction set architectures to build emulators that will run the old hardware, to run the old software. And by the way, how do we get access to the old software and the old applications? They're often proprietary limitations, you have to get licenses. So some archeologists, digital archeologists in the year 2500 uh, may be out of luck unless someone has thought their way through how to make provision for 
running some of those old pieces of software to correctly interpret the old bits. That's concern one. I'm going to uh, quickly ask you two other things before I'm going to ask my last question to you, Vint. Uh, first of all, um, the the world um, the United Nations has developed the Sustainability Development Goals. Yes. And they call this decade the decade of execution, where digital is the great enabler. Um, do you agree that digital has a, a, a net positive impact on the world, or are there concerns you have? So it's, 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 it's uh, so is there a downside of what we're talking about, or is it indeed going to help us? Well, certainly, uh, this is a decade of what I will call computational X for almost all values of X, whether it's linguistics and astrophysics or physics or chemistry. We're seeing people getting Nobel Prizes using computer technology in order to make discoveries. And so this is a very powerful tool. Uh, whether it will effectively help us solve the sustainability problem and in, implicitly help us to solve the climate change problem is still an open question. But there's no doubt in my mind that it's a very powerful tool uh, to help us model what's going on and the, and the extent to which our models accurately reflect how the real world is working. Well, we may be able to uh, gain insight from those models to figure out what we should do in order to mediate or mitigate the effects of global warming. So I see computing as a very powerful tool in this decade. Uh, we also know that those kinds of tools can be abused. And so we're also seeing harmful behaviors showing up in the information technology environment on the internet. For example, we see distributed denial of service attacks malware distribution, phishing and farming, uh, misinformation and disinformation, ransomware, um, bullying, uh, stalking. I mean, there's this long list, fraud. All these bad things are happening. And it's not because the technology is bad. It's because the people have the power to use the technology to do things that are harmful. So now what do we do? Well, we, this isn't the first time we face the problem of humans using technology to do harmful things. Well, uh, atomic Technology can be used to build bombs and it can be built uh, to use uh, you know, power generation systems. One is beneficial and the other not so much. And it's all human initiative that uh, is behind that. So now we have a sociological problem that we need to deal with. How do we persuade people to do the right thing and not the wrong thing? And we know that there are only three ways to do that. Uh, we can say we built technical uh, mechanisms to prevent you from doing bad things. That doesn't always work. It's like seat belts, for example. People don't always wear them. Uh, automatic braking, well, that sometimes doesn't work. So we do the technical things, and then we say to people, you know, if we find you doing these bad things, there'll be consequences. We warn people that if we catch them, there will be consequences, but we know we won't catch all of them. So the next thing we can say is, you know, don't do that. It's just wrong. It's moral suasion. And although that sounds weak, I will say that if a society adopts norms that reject certain behaviors, for example, let's take smoking. We now have rules here in the US and probably in other parts of the world that say, don't smoke in this building. If you smoke in the building, there will be consequences. You, know, you might get fired or fined or something else. So we, and people now are beginning to accept that as a norm of behavior. Don't smoke, ask, ask permission, 
go elsewhere where it's permitted. Uh, and so norms could turn out to be a really powerful tool for us to manage abusive use of technology. Okay. Hey, one more question about a concern. You talked about great tools. Uh, great tools requires people. And uh, I had a discussion. I'm a fellow with the Royal Dutch Association for IT Professionals. I actually believe that it's the only royal association out there in the world for IT professionals. Uh, but the question was, do we have enough skills uh, and how do we get enough skills? Because demand is growing so fast, um, it's, it's perceived to be a big issue. We're not going to have the people to build the system, to write the policy for the systems. What's your take on that? So uh, several things occur to me. The first one, of course, is to imbue the IT professionals with a sense of responsibility for how what they build is used and to be thinking uh, how to make it safer and more secure to inhibit abusive uh, uh, application or at least expose abusive applications so that people can be held accountable if they are using systems to do harmful things. Uh, I think that uh, we will see, whether we like it or not, legislation saying, you know, the following things are not acceptable. If we catch you doing them, there will be consequences. What we really need, though, in the Internet environment is uh, cooperation and collaboration across countries because the Internet's global. The abusive behaviors can cross jurisdictional boundaries and harm can occur in one country. It's initiated in another. So we need to collaborate and cooperate to identify parties who are behaving badly, which, by the way, says that absolute anonymity is not our friend in this environment. We have to be able to identify parties in order to hold them accountable, whether that's individuals or corporations or even countries. Um, then there is the flip side of all this, and that's agency. We need to give users like you and me or companies or even countries the means by which to defend themselves against harmful behaviors. And, and abusive applications of these technologies. So we need, as, as IT professionals, we have to be able to build those agency, those tools giving agency. We should feel responsible for doing that. Um, so I'm frankly hoping that societies like the one you mentioned and others will um, introduce into the training process a sense of responsibility for responsible use of IT. And I, I hope that, that, that we can make that work within the societies that are depending on it. Okay. And next to responsibility, how are we going to organize accountability? Uh, well, in, in order to make accountability work, you have to be able to rely on transparency. You have to know where did the software come from. You have to know who to hold liable for uh, the abuse of that software. Uh, this is getting very complicated now with the introduction of artificial intelligence and machine learning, because if a machine learning system, which I view as a tool, is abused, uh, the question is, well, you know, who, who are the responsible parties? Well, the party who uses the technology to do something harmful ought to be held accountable. But we might argue that the parties who create the tool, which lacks any kind of control, uh, may also have some uh, responsibility. And so there is going to be a huge debate here about liability, responsibility, and accountability. Before I ask my final question to you, uh, I happen to be in Geneva at the moment. Uh, tomorrow I'm here 
to moderate one of the sessions on the AI for Good Summit, and we're going to talk about AI and ethics, how to make keep keep it ethical. What's the question I should bring to the audience when we talk about how we're going to organize AI and ethics? Well, I would focus specifically on the large language models right now because they are the most uh, visible uh, as uh, as producing unwanted side effects. Uh, uh, anyone who's used any of the chatbots should recognize that the system uh, correlates the way in which language functions, regardless of which language is used to train them. Um, and they generate text based on all the probability of this token, this term, this phrase being the natural next one or the best next one to include in a growing uh, response to a prompt. Um, the problem that this, the systems have is that they don't understand context uh, to be concrete. I asked one of the chatbots to do an obituary for me, and assuming that the obituary format would have been ingested and well known to the chatbot, but also that information about me is widely available on the web. So I assumed that there would be a lot of information about me that would help to help the system to compose an obituary, which it did. But um, it, while the format was right, it got very confused about the things I had done compared to things other people had done. And it gave me credit for things I didn't do. And it gave other people credit for stuff I did. And when it got down to the family members that left behind and made up family members I don't have. And I looked at that and I realized that the reason that the system fails in that way, and by the way, the technologists call that hallucination, is that when the system discovers correlations in the use of terms, it doesn't, for example, understand that it got a particular activity associated with someone other than me on the same web page where I show up. And so the fact that it happens to be on the same web page means it gets plucked out of context and associated with me, although that isn't correct. And so the training program and the modeling that goes on in the large language models doesn't have enough refinement to understand the context in which it captures the information that it uses to produce its output. We need to solve that problem. We need to build the moral equivalent of a superego in order to handle uh, the bad behavior of the artificial id, which we've invented, and maybe also the artificial ego. We need to build an artificial superego, and I'm sure Freud would be happy to give his advice on this. I didn't expect that answer. And actually, that means one of my last questions was obsolete because I was asked, I wanted to ask, how do you want the world to remember you? Well, uh, the good thing is now we know, don't ask Chat TGP to write an obituary, but <laughs> what is your advice to young people out there? Uh, let's end with that one. Well, um, again, I don't pretend to be expert because I've only been one uh, young one time and I don't have you know, the experience of being young multiple times. But uh, just speaking from my own experience, the first thing is that trying to plan your career is probably worthless. Don't do that. Just be alert to opportunity. Uh, recognize uh, that humility is your friend here. Uh, recognizing that asking questions to learn more uh, turning to people who know more than you do to get good answers is uh, is a valuable exercise. Uh, my career is punctuated by attempts to say no when other people insisted I had to say yes, uh, for which I'm very grateful. 
uh, and uh, also to recognize uh, opportunity, even when it shows up in a very odd form. For example, you just got fired or the project you worked on failed. And some people at that point would just crumble. Other people see that as a door closing, uh, suggesting another door just opened up. And so being alert to opportunity when it shows up, even if it shows up in this odd way, uh, is really important for successful careers. Okay. Thank you for that advice. Uh, I'm also, throughout this whole interview event, uh, picked up something else. You just mentioned in the beginning, you just celebrated your 80th birthday two weeks ago. And you keep on giving me the impression, you keep on being curious, you keep on working, you don't stop. Uh, is that also part of the secret? Because there's no secret here. Um, I think there's just so much to do. And I'm fascinated. I, mean, I, I know that the older I get, the, the less I know I know. And, and, and so that means there's just more and more to, to learn. But, you know, the technology of the day, as, as troubling as it can be, is so enabling. It's just astonishing. And so we just get to do stuff we couldn't possibly have done before. One of my most fascinating projects is the interplanetary internet you know, to expand the operation of the internet across the solar system. And, and my uh, colleagues and I have been working on that since 1998. So this is a not a Google project. This is more like ESA and JAXA and CARI and NASA are, are all working together on this. It didn't start that way. It started at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1998. But we've been working on the design and implementation and testing of the system for all that time. Um, there's just, oh my God. I mean, this is it's more fun than, than imaginable to be alive now with all the tools and information available. I remember having to go to the library and spend hours trying to find information. Now I just type a question into Google. I get the answer in milliseconds. Um, so what's not to like about that? That's a great way to end an awesome interview. Uh, thank you for my time. I think we can go on the whole evening, the whole night. <laughs> uh, but I want to thank you for now uh, taking us along what you're part was in inventing the internet, getting that into place, your perspective on the, what are some of the concerns, and I want to thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's always fun to kind of reminisce about the history of all this stuff. I still realize that uh, the only reason the internet is what it is is because so many people are contributing to it in the past and the present and in the future. There's nothing more wonderful than to know a kind of core idea that you had has been taken up by millions of people to make it better. Uh, what's not to like about that? Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it, Fritz. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.